You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Um, here's a t-shirt that somebody gave me when I was about six that I didn't understand. A picture of a Chinese guy painting a flag of the Chinese flag over the British one. It was about 93, and I was uh, in Hong Kong at the time. I used to go to Hong Kong in the summers. Somebody said, Hong Kong's not always going to exist to Britain uh, as, a, as, you know, a colony, I guess, I don't know if that's the right word, of, of Britain, underneath this contract that they had um, during some of the wars in the late 1800s. It's going to get turned back over to China. And uh, that was way too big for my brain. It still kind of is way too big for my brain. Um, but this is the reality of the place that I'm from in Hong Kong, that it has been um, a system within larger systems. If you've been following uh, the news at all lately, China is now going through another transition, or Hong Kong is. In 1947, Hong Kong is, um, uh, it has always been overseen by China, but in the current reality, will turn itself completely back over to China, um, not as a kind of separate political entity, but as one system and one country. That's the vision that China wants to do, is, is envelop, China, or envelop Hong Kong back into China. Now they call it two systems, one country, in the future, in 47, it's supposed to be one country, one, one system. Um, and as you know, there's been a revolution over there. There's been democratic uprisings. There's been revolts and so forth. And so there's a lot of tumultuous things that are going on based on this extradition law that they're pushing, such that probably it won't be until 2047. It'll probably be in the near future that China and Hong Kong, well, Hong Kong itself will be drastically changed. And that country, I haven't been there probably for three or four years, but even now I'm told that if I go back there, it's just not the same. And so sometime, sometime when we're in about fourth grade, they hand us a globe, and we say, this took a lot of time to build. This globe must be uh, substantial, and it must be permanent. But if you ask the Romans and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and lots of other countries, nations are not permanent. Nations are temporary. And nations are built on really two things. They're built on military and politics. If you've ever played the game King of the Hill or Capture the Flag, countries are built on not can you just take the hill, but can you keep the hill? Can you conquer the territory, but can you develop it? Can you send a soldier out there, but also send a farmer and a teacher and a lawyer and a musician to develop the culture? Because you can take the land, but it doesn't always mean that you can keep it. And it's based on that kind of national, national sovereignty. Now, the Bible makes a very important claim all throughout the scriptures, but 37, Psalm 37 is a great place to start. And that is this, is that according to the Bible, that land is not actually taken. So naturally and, and superficially, we see land getting parsed out, you know, like a, like a monopoly board. We think that military and politics takes and keeps land, but according to the Bible, land is not taken, it's inherited. Because God has eminent domain, he controls all the land, and he can give the land and take it from whom he chooses. And he will. He will, he will in the end, give the land according to his will. Okay? So land is not given, it's not taken, and therefore it's not just to be lived in, it's to be dwelled in. It's to be deeply rooted in. It's a place where blessing is going to flow. It's a place where people's relationship with God will become strong and fortified based on the land. This is why God says, I'm going to send you to a promised land. So in Psalm 37, I'll just pick out a couple key verses here. But this is what Psalm 37 says. The Romans might occupy the land for a time, but in, in eternity, the wicked will be no more. You catch that? So we watch C-SPAN and we look at the globe and we think that military and politics is what takes and keeps land. But God says otherwise. He says, in a little while, the wicked will be no more. The, they will look for them, you will look for them and they will not be found. And the greatest, the greatest ironic, unexpected thing is that the children, the meek, 
those that are not strong, not powerful, and not having political prowess will actually inherit the land. This is what God believes about the land. The land is not a globe. The land is not something that can be parsed out by presidents and emperors and dictators. The land is God's, and people that are seeking him will inherit it. They won't need to take it or or keep it on their own terms. Psalm 37, 3, as the anchor point for this whole psalm, and I'm going to read a couple more passages out of this, says this, Psalm 37, 3 says, Trust in the Lord. Everybody say, trust in the Lord. And do good and dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. When God looks at the land, he's looking at different than CNN. He looks at it completely different. It is not uh, taken, it is given, and it's not just lived in, it's dwelled in. There is a, a heaven space reality that takes place with those who trust him that operate in the land differently than every nation that's ever touched, touched the earth. And by the way, this is why I don't believe in, in Christian nations, okay? I believe in Christian values, I believe in Christian people in politics, but you can't draw a circle around a certain country and just make everybody Christian, right? That's not possible, that's, that's, like, God's country is not defined by politics and military. God's country is defined by faith. And it can access any place, and he's not waiting for some president to make it so. So I think we should promote Christian values, and I think I want Christian people, like, deciding important decisions, but the idea of enforcing and legislating Christianity is not biblical. It just, it's not even possible, let alone biblical, right? So this is the idea, is that God is helping us reorient the land. Now, I want to show you a funny picture. So... I'm running the other day. No, the other day. A couple years ago, actually. <laughs> Excuse me. That's all blends together. So I'm running. It's not November. My wife says I have a, a sneaky, unhot body. I'll leave you at whatever that means. So it's hot. I'm running. I'm dehydrated. And I get on my porch, small little patio home, but it's my castle. I'm in my own. I, this is my space. And I'm hanging out, and I think to myself, well, I'm about to tell you it's going to take a minute, but it's six seconds. I said, I thought to myself, what is that car that's just like, that's a weird Ghostbuster-looking car. So it's like down the street, and I'm sitting there with my, like, lemonade, enjoying my two-and-a-half-mile run. I'm dying over. And this car comes down the street, and it's just a moment where you freeze and you wish you would act the right, like you wish your impulses were better than fight or flight or whatever. I wish I would have done something better. I'll show you the picture in a second. This car comes by, and as soon as it's about as far as away from Justin to me, I say, I say to myself out loud, I say, oh, snap, that's a Google Maps car. So this car comes through. Okay, this car comes through. And it's got nine cameras on it. And it's just like the paparazzi. And I mean, no one's ever taken a picture of me other than my mother. Just, and I'm just looking like a deer. So if I could show you the first one. So if you go on Zillow, like you won't really see, okay? But I'm off to the left of the tree. So let's just zoom in just a second. There it is. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to go and see it on Zillow.com. For posterity's sake, I was both physically and I feel spiritually um, invaded in that place. I did not feel good about that being online. So what God is saying is that land is not dictated by your flag or by the furniture or by the paint you have on the wall. It's dictated by where you dwell. It's dictated by where you trust. So what God is saying in this picture is, he's interested. He's like, he's like, he's like we're all looking for home, right? A lot of times we're moving around the furniture. We're moving around the paint. We're just trying to get it just right. We're trying to turn a house into home. We're trying to settle. We're trying to be a man. We're trying to be a wife. We're trying to be a kid. We're trying to figure out how to make home in this place. And we feel restless, and we change our hair, and we change our job. And we can't, you know, Noah's name, it means rest. It means he, it means he was able to find a peace in the earth. That's what his name Noah means. And, and we're trying to find that 
shalom peace. And for the life of us, we can't just find it, right? And we're trying to find it by military and power. And if I make the right choices and if I make the right decor thing and if I create the right neighborhood, if I live in the right house and if I pick the hipsterous looking coffee thing that I have, whatever it is that I'm trying to find home in, and God's just saying, it's not found there, it's found in trusting in me by dwelling in me. This is where home is. And so he's looking at that thing and he's like, I love that your bushes just need to get chopped all over and take care of your wife. Like, don't be a jerk. But at the same time, home is trust. Home is trusting me. And so for him, finding home is not finding an Obama stimulus check to buy that house. Home is trust. Home is not flags. It's not furniture. It's not paint on the wall. It's trust. It's dwelling in him. It's finding out how to love God and love neighbor and love your wife and lay your life. This is where the eternal home is being found. Okay? So this is where we're, we're, we're camped out. I'm going to just get to the passage in just a second. But this is what Hebrews 11 says of Abraham. By faith, Abraham called to a place he later received as his inheritance. Did you catch that language? So it's not taken, it is given. Obeyed and he went. Even though he did, he did not know where he was going because it wasn't in the wall and it wasn't on the map. It was in the kingdom and it was in righteousness, peace, and joy. And so all along, he's following a voice that doesn't have a geolocation. He's following a place. So verse nine says, so by faith, he made his home in the promised land as a stranger. He was he was. He was living under the bridge. He was living in a tent. He was living in Simpsonville. He was living in Greenville, but his home was not in that place. His home was in a place he couldn't see. His home was in the promised land. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him in the same promise. But verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So here's what I want us to see as we get into this for our word. The theme word is dwell for the morning. Oftentimes I think Christians are really just socially awkward and sometimes a bit cantankerous and unagreeable, and they chalk it up to just being an alien. Oh, I'm just an alien down here. Well, here's the truth. Jesus was never at a place where he wasn't home. Jesus was always home because he was always in the Father. And so it says that although he lived in a tent, he wasn't homeless. He was actually more home than the Philistines. Did you catch that? So he was home. And so I think that some of the times we chalk up our insecurities, our lack of home, our lack of rest, our lack of, of feeling comfortable and confident in our own skin, and we say, oh, it's because I don't belong here. No, Jesus always belonged here. He says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, but my home is in the Father. And everywhere he, that feeling of belonging, like I wish I could just belong, and how come at church I don't feel like I really connect, and how come at work nobody, how come it feels like I just can't belong? It must be because I don't belong here. And we quote this passage, and just say, no, it's like Jesus was always home because he's always in the Father. So the goal here is not just to live, but to dwell. And what does it mean to dwell? This passage is all about dwelling. And by the end of this passage, which is really the last kind of like litmus test test point before it turns the page into the greatest test of Abraham is to sacrifice his son and have that um, be saved. This is what Abraham is doing in Genesis 21. If you look at the screen, and then I'm, this is our kind of outline I'm going to move through. So, so, so his making home is just not spiritual. It's physical. It's practical. And it involves actual faith actions. And he's finding himself actually less and less rooted in the land and more and more rooted in, in the Lord, okay? And so this is what this is going to look like, and I feel like it has application for us today. In Genesis 21, we're going to read a story right now about Abraham making a treaty. This is a lot of stuff that he gets done. He makes a treaty, he digs a well, he offers a blessing, he plants a tree, and he calls in the everlasting God. That's a, I didn't even, that's six months I haven't done as much as him, right? So he makes a treaty with a major uh, power, he digs a well, he gives a blessing, he plants a tree, and he calls in the name of the everlasting God. So this is not passive, like our finding home isn't just, I'm just going to wait till I die. There is home to be had here, and the promise of the Lord is to trust in the Lord, do good, and what? And to dwell here. 
He wants you rooted. He doesn't want you bouncing from church to church. He doesn't want you bouncing from relationship to relationship and haircut to haircut and uncomfortable in your skin. No, you're here to dwell today, not in a zip code, but in his heart, to trust in him, to lean into him. This is what your promise is. And so let's not forfeit the inheritance because he's giving it to us and he's waiting for us to surrender and receive. So here, let's, let's get reading. So 22. At the same time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything that you do. It's a great, it's a great encouragement, great compliment, right? Abimelech, as we talked about, is the same guy that Abraham lied to in the previous chapter. He is one of the rulers, one of the kings. Abimelech is like the name of a king in the Philistine land who uh, operates in great authority. Now, he's brought Phicol around, and Phicol is a military commander. So I believe the Bible is trying to show us that Phicol and Abimelech are presenting to Abraham a contract, a treaty based on military and political um, uh, dynamic. See? So the military and politics has come to Abraham to have a conversation about the relationship that this stranger in this land, who they're going to treat like a sovereign nation, as a matter of fact, how they're going to relate. How is Abraham, because it says he lives for the rest of his days in Philistine land, he never sees the physical uh, uh, promised land. So how is Abraham going to relate to politics and military? So he says, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me. Anyone know why he might have to bring that up? Because Abraham has kind of squirreled on him a few times. Promise me honesty and honor. Okay? Like, it's not a Christian nation. I'm not saying Philistines are going to become Christian. It's just when you relate to the world, when you relate to civic um, public life, honor and honesty. Will you do this for me, Abraham? Will you be honest with me? Not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner. The same kindness, that word is hesed. It's a sweet biblical word. I mean, it's like, this is the word that God uses for himself and for his church. Hesed is the closest word to agape in all of the Old Testament. He says, I want you to show me this kind of kindness to me that I've shown to you. So we already know that he's kind of a one-off. Like, Abimelech is not your typical Philistine. And he represents the world and the nations that surround Abraham um, but he fears God. And he talks about this in the last chapter. You'll have to listen to the other sermon before this. But he fears God. And so God is trying to set up through this guy a kind of relationship that is going to exist for Abraham in the days that he's there. And he swears on it. This relationship of honor and honesty. Honesty and honor. That word hesed, it means loving kindness. Loving loyalty and kindness. Usually meaning salvation. This is the word that Lot says that, uh, that God has been kind to me. He has shown me his hesed. And so God is saying and installing in Abraham that his, all his days in the Philistine land, he shouldn't fear them. God is his great strength, his reward, his shield. Okay? But the way that he operates towards, towards his neighbor is to reflect and extend the same hesed that was given to him. This is the relationship that God is calling on Abraham. So Abraham swears it. He says before God and before this guy, Phicol and Abimelech, that I will show you the kind of love that God has shown me. So I want to paint a big picture here, and then I also want to get personal for a second. So, throughout the Bible, and this is one of the first times that we see it, this is a common theme, honor and honesty, um, for, uh, for people that live as exiles in a foreign land. Whether it's Daniel, whether it's um, Joseph in Egypt, whether it's, um, you know, anybody, Babylonians, the exile. The idea here is, is that God is giving land, he's not letting it be taken. God is going to inherit the land to the meek, but there are seasons... And for most of existence, where the, the faith family is going to have to live as a minority and not a majority. And the relationship here is not one of re just revolt or rebellion. Because the two different sides, the two different swings of what happens when you are a minority in a foreign land is either, either you dig your heels in to become a revolting, rebellious 
cantankerous nation that's very difficult to deal with, and this is just history, not let alone Bible history, is like you are the people that resist the empire and you revolt against them. That's typically one way. Now, there's another way, obviously, where most of the time people just assimilate the culture. They intermarry, they have babies, and they just become adopters of the exact same culture that they live in. So there's a, there, there is either resistance or assimilation. But what's being presented here as a biblical paradigm is, is a line that is honoring, but it's honest. It is loyally loving, but it's also resilient. So we're going to get back to that in a second, but back to that personal note. I think that it's interesting to me that in, a, that in a whole passage, it's really about dwelling and how not just to live, but to dwell well, that the first topic that's talked about is not the furniture on the wall or the flag in the field. The first topic is submission. The first topic that's here in this list as we begin to talk about what does the relationship look like to dwell well in the land is basically not to be a jerk to the, to the authorities that are at hand. This is the idea. That Daniel, he wears the king's clothes, he operates in the culture, he was, he was sent there for a specific purpose, but then when it came time to draw the line of prayer and what it meant to abstain from the other culture so he could represent a salt and, and, and light um, uh, uh, um, presence within the Babylonian culture was to know how to be loyal and resilient at the same time. So here's the thing. If you think of either yourself or if you were to reflect on the people that you know in your life that, are, that have the most difficult time finding home and rooting themselves in family, in church, in society, in jobs. I'm going to propose to you and suggest, I think, that you will also find a tendency to not be able to submit. Most of the time, and I'm not going to use this as like a big heavy-handed submit to just authorities thing. I'm talking about most of the time when people can't find roots in home, it's because they don't know how to yield their will to somebody else's. Inside and outside the church, but especially inside the church, most of the time we float, we float our hairstyles, we float where we live, we float our sometimes spouses, our churches, our communities. And if you look at the, the character reference there and all the trail that's behind it, usually it's associated with people that do not know how to be honest and honoring at the same time. And so I want to encourage you, this is the deal. Jesus didn't have to submit to anyone, yet he made himself a servant. And Jesus never called the emperor, you know, an orange oopaloompa, you know, right? He never, he never dishonored. He never dishonored. And there's, we'll read the New Testament passage as well. Jesus chose to submit himself, not because he trusted the people around him. It says in the scripture, he didn't entrust his heart to any man because he knew what was in him, right? He didn't, it's not because he trusted the people around him, it's because he trusted the one that held him. So, so when we struggle with submission, and all of us, I promise you, we could, talk, we could get on the mic and share our stories about being burned, being burned in church, being burned by our spouse, being burned by our teachers, being by law enforcement, like all of us have experiences. But, but the call, the call to serve and submit, and I want to read this passage in a second in Peter, it's not because we trust them, it's because we trust him. He's sovereign enough. And you're not hurting them, you're hurting yourself. And when the walls are up and there's no sense of like, if you don't know how to yield, if you don't know how to yield your will, I promise you if you're at this church for longer than six months, if you at all like me at all anymore, you won't like me in six months. At some point, I'm going to let you down. And the question then for the, for the idea of dwelling and rooting, it's not about this paint, right? Because you can have great paint in a great mansion and be completely drifting, drifting in your life. You have no roots. You have no relationships. You have no consistency, right? And it's because most of the time we don't trust them enough to submit. Do you trust him enough, not them, him enough to submit? Jesus lowered himself. So this is what it says. Take it or leave it, right? Chapter uh, 1 Peter 
uh, I think it's 2.13, submit yourselves to the Lord to every human authority. Jesus, now listen, authority, just submission does not mean, Jesus teaches us that submission can mean you, you disagree. Jesus teaches us that submission means that you can critique, you can be silent and uh, not respond as he did with, um, uh, with the Romans. Uh, Jesus teaches this, so submission doesn't just mean defeat. Submission means the meek inherit the earth and I choose to serve you. And I choose to seek reconciliation as much as it is possible. Not for them, but for him. And so there's this submission here. Submit yourselves for, for the sake of every human authority, whether the emperor or supreme authority, or to the governors or teachers or toll booth people, librarians, I don't know who it is, your parents, right? Who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right for it is God's will that we be doing good. You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live, live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. So I had a little segue, but like number, one of the number one uh, hashtags right now for President Trump is the president is a crybaby. This is like number, like if you search Trump, this is what you're going to see, okay? This is our nation. McDonald's itself uh, said recently in a tweet, you are a disgusting excuse for a president. Uh, uh, Trump is a twit. He is like an idiot, but dumber. He's an orange Oompa Loompa, right? And some of these jokes, I mean, I, I think we can laugh at some things and still submit at the same time. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying take things over this here, but this is my point. Jesus says anger is supposed to provoke change, not contempt. The word raka means contempt. Raka means I shut the door and I don't have anything to do with you. So anyone, let alone authorities, is the desire, is my heart the desire to reconcile? Is my heart my desire to see peace, to see shalom, to see kingdom? If I've closed the door to that, if I have acted in contempt towards anyone, let alone the emperor, right, then I put myself in a bad spot. Then I've compromised what his understanding of geopolitics is, which is, which is do you know how to do honor and honesty at the same time? That's the question. That's the test of the church. And so, I, I mean, I heard somebody say, somebody said President Trump the other day, they must be a Republican. That's sad. President Obama, President Trump, President Clinton, it doesn't matter. Like, this is, it's not because of who they are, it's because who he is. And so the idea is, like, if we promote, like, 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 like pushing down and expecting perfection of, of, of and they, that people need to be responsible and accountable, don't get me wrong. But, like, if we continue to hark on teachers and to diminish teachers in the eyes of our kids, what does that do for the profession of teachers? What does that do? And when a kid sees the society treat teachers that way, what will happen in the future? We will reap what we'll sow, right? So even politically, not just spiritually speaking, we're not honoring because we trust them. We're honoring because we trust him. Just a quick little, quick little book reports here if you want to read more about what this looks like to live in an exile because we are moving this way. We are not the majority as Christians. We need to learn how to honor, do honor and honesty well to promote and seek the welfare of the city because in it is our blessing. This is what Jeremiah says, but also learn how to stand up. Some of us are too much honor and some of us are too much honesty. But uh, two books, one is called Faith for Exiles by David Kinnaman and it talks all about the digital revolution and where we are as a church and how we might uh, be um, honoring and honest to have loyal, hesitant love as well as uh, conviction. Uh, another book is called um, The Beautiful Resistance, which Graham gave me uh, just last week uh, by John Tyson. And it talks about things like media consumption, rest, sexuality, cynicism. When you look at The Office and you think about the overall brand of that culture, what is, that, what is the message of that thing? It's saying that if you get through the day and if you can go ahead and get your taxes paid and have, you know, uh, a girlfriend or whatever, like that is what success is. That is a low, cynical view of bosses, management, and work. And it's funny, and we can laugh at it. I'm not saying, we need to laugh more. We take ourselves too seriously. But the point is, the point is, if we adopt the message of this culture, and we are not honest with what our covenant says, we are blending in, and we are not being the salt and light of the earth. 
We have to get our arms around what it means to submit to him and what it means to trust him and not them. We have to get this right. We have to get this right. All right, moving on. Uh, 25, it says, Then Abraham complained to Abimelech over a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abraham said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So literally two verses after he just promised and sweared that he was going to be honest uh, with this king, he's somewhat dishonest, which is, it's not, it's not just funny. It's on purpose. If you flip ahead in a few days, we're going to see that Isaac is actually going to do the same sin as his father and lie about his wife and say it's his sister. I mean, generational... I don't know if you believe in generational curses, but there is generational stupidity, and I can tell you all about that. So, so the point is that humans tend to recreate the past. And so Abraham is swearing, but we've just gotten to this point. The Bible is trying to let us know that, that the point is, is that not only has Abraham failed in Genesis 12 and again in 21, but he is failing even as he talks about loyalty and love, and he will fail. Right? So this is what we're saying. We see Abraham, and he says, I swear, and we see that we want him to authority and want him to submit, and we want him to serve and have hesed love for his neighbors, but we know that he can't on his own. So what will he do then? What do you do when you don't live up to your own standards? A lot of times we get called hypocrites as Christians, and maybe we should, but the other side of that is the reason why it's easy to be a hypocritical Christian is because we stand for something. It's easy to not be a hypocrite if you don't stand for anything. So that's, that's the truth. But reality is, is that he's in a position where we know as a Bible reader, and he's learning, that he will not always fulfill his covenant bargain. He cannot hesed his neighbors the way that God hesed him. He can't do it. So what does he do then? This is where it comes home for practical application. Uh, those of you guys that like to read into numbers and sevens, you're going to love this one. So verse 27 in, 20, in chapter 21, So Abraham brought sheep and cattle, gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Verse 28, Abraham set apart seven new lambs from the flock. Verse 29, And Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven new lambs? So right there, there's actually two sevens. The number seven is written twice. It's going to be written three times in the passage overall. And the, uh, the well of Beersheba, which they're fighting over, is going to get mentioned four times, making a total of seven plus the seven new lambs. So there's a lot of Jesus-y stuff that's going on here. If you know, seven means completion. It means Sabbath. It means like uh, a picture of a third party that makes it well. Okay? So Jesus is in the midst. His name's not there, but he's all over the pages. Okay? Uh, so Abraham set apart seven new lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven new lambs you have set apart by themselves? Verse 30, he replied, accept these seven uh, lambs uh, from my hand as a witness that I dug the well. So the place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. Uh, sad news today that uh, Bob Hessel is not here today, which means, unfortunately, we actually do not have lemonade tea. But let's just drink on the Holy Spirit and have a great time out there anyways and stay. Uh, and next week, we'll get back to the snacks. But Bob uh, leads out this ministry thing we've been doing at Motel 6. The first time we rolled up to the motel, um, there was two squad cars and just a, a scene from just Fox News out there. It was intense. And so I didn't know what was going on, trying to set up the shop and just kind of like stay, lay low and not kind of intervene. Um, there was actually, just before we got there, a gunshot had gone off, and there was like a dispute over, you know, what the cops had done. And one of the ladies was super upset because uh, she felt that the cops um, didn't, uh, didn't apprehend the guy the right way, and she felt like it was racially profiled because it was a white guy within this neighborhood. And so this lady was letting us have it. I mean, just uh, being sarcastic. Well, look at God, you know, because she was upset because we didn't intervene. And she's talking to Bob and yelling at him, and Bob just, just I mean, just the sweetest, most, I just saw such a peace and a Christ-likeness as she's, he's lovingly talking to this woman. And uh, Bob's talking to her, asking questions, de-escalating the conversation. And, um, and I remember one of the things that I saw Bob do, that I saw Jesus really speaking to me about, is as she's talking, Bob just says, listen, can you just accept my apology? 
Can I just say sorry? One of the things I think we need to do better at and grow in as a church is learning how to say sorry early and often and not to project perfection. Abraham is growing in his faith. We're seeing kind of the maturest side of Abraham. And what he's doing with these seven lambs by faith because he doesn't know Jesus' name yet is he's not pointing to his perfection or the promise of perfection. He's pointing to his. So fundamentally, rooting in the land and dwelling in the land is not to, to carry the burden of perfection, but to trust in his. And when we make mistakes, when we will, and when you don't listen well, and you won't, and when you don't parent well, and, you, and when you don't lead well, like when you don't neighbor well, the best thing to do is not pretend like you did, is to point to him, is to ask for an is to apologize, is to ask for forgiveness. And I just want to tell, I mean, I think a lot of times people get into Christian church because there's this feeling like maybe if we go to church that everything's just going to be right and everybody's going to be together and all the programs, you get to church and you realize it's just as much of a mess in here as it is out there. And I just want to relieve you of having to be perfect. You're not perfect. He is. And actually that sin that you just committed is not just a blip on the radar. It's an invitation to a deeper thing. Thank you for revealing this to me because that wasn't just an accident. That's revealing something that's in me. And I'm not going like, to cover it up for my neighbor and cover it up for my, my church. I'm going to like, get into that because I know his grace is there. I'm, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in my failures and my shortcoming and my sin. This is the difference between a perfectionist church and one that focuses on his perfection. And so I had a conversation. These guys over this bad week for City Lights, I guess. These guys over here uh, are, are concerned about the houses and some of the things that are going on in the houses that we own on the Swap Rabbit Trail. I could tell you more about it. 13 acres or 17 acres. It's super excited. We're going to plant a church out there. But the point is, is that these houses are really run down, and this guy is really upset with us. And I, and, and I literally use it was funny. I used the words honesty and kindness because the guy wasn't very kind. He was like, you scum. I don't know what he called me, but it wasn't very nice on Facebook. And I was just, I hope you'd be proud of me. I was like, sir, I want to rebuild trust with you. This is not the kind of neighbor we want to be. I'm going to call you this afternoon, and I want you to know that I'm out here because I care, for you. I care about you. I'm not out there to, like, sweep something on the rug. And you could tell the conversation changed just like that. And even his tone changed just like that. And I just think as Christians, we need to convey to the world that we're not here because we're perfect, right? We're here because he's perfect, and he's completed it in us. Moving on. Uh, verse 32, uh, after the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech uh, and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God, and Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. That, is, that means for the, rest of his, for the rest of his days. So uh, I meant to get a picture, but the well of Beersheba is still there. Um, it's about 40 uh, meters deep. Uh, it's about 40 feet wide. Uh, it, was, it was made 4,000 years ago, and it was built by the hands of Abraham. Like, I feel ashamed to even call myself a pastor that I learned that this week. I'm like, wait, there's something that Abraham built that's still out? Yes, it's there, and it's amazing. And there's water in there all the time. Uh, I've been told that you have, to drink, um, you have to drink a gallon of water every four hours. So if you think about this, they're not running on cars, they're running on camels, and so water was like oil back then. So it was a place of hospitality, and it was a place of ownership, and Abraham digs this well. Then he goes and plants this tamarisk tree. Now, tamarisk, tamarisk tree, obviously, you know, off the, from the front, you know, first impression, has to be a very special tree to grow in the desert. requires a lot of care and nurturing, and any, if anything, is a kind of pillar that is planted, not just for you and your family to enjoy, uh, to look at, but for your, for your generations to remember where they came from. It's a monument tree, and it's something that requires a lot of heritage. And so what I think out of this is that, that Abraham is doing two things. He is planting a well, and he's digging a well and planting a tree because he is showing the everlasting God is faithful, and he wants to communicate that he has faith in that God, and he wants to communicate it and, and preach it and shout it to all of the nations and all of the generations. 
This is what Abraham is doing. He's digging his roots deep, and he's saying that the ownership in this land is not from above, but it's, it's, it's from the root system. It's not waiting for rain to fall, but it's digging the roots deep into the promises of God. And so what Abraham is doing is I'm not going to set up a flag, and I'm not going to set up some furniture. I'm going to dig a well, and I'm going to plant a tree. And I'm going to call on the name of the everlasting God. And so this is what we've seen in terms of the development of the name. Uh, he says in verse 33, he, Abraham, calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. If you look at Genesis 12, and I'm going to fly right through this because we're short on time. But you look at Genesis 12, Yahweh calls him. Yahweh is the personal name of God. Abraham follows him. And Abraham knows not anything really about God other than what he's just said. And he just knows that that God has called me. That God, this God has called me. He knows of him, but he doesn't know him yet. So he grows from being filled with faith and then becoming a friend. In the next chapter, when he has to go fight wars against all these little powers, and Melchizedek comes out and offers him victory within the land uh, to save Lot, who was being like, kidnapped at that time, he comes out of that battle and not only realizes that he's that God that calls him, but he's the God over all nations because he's just seen uh, that, that God just became the God because that God just put all the other nations down. So he must not be that God who's called me. He must be the God over every single nation. The story develops and the character gets uh, more contextualized. And by the time we saw him at the edge of his tent, when Abraham is waiting and, and the angels come and tell uh, Sarah that she's going to have a baby and she laughs, the word that's used there is Lord, my master. Not just that God, not just the God. Oh, there's the well of Beersheba. Boom. Thank you, Becca. I appreciate you. Not just that God, not just the God, but what? My God. The one who knows me, the one who sees me, the one who takes care of me, the one who cares about the hairs on my head. There's a difference between a geopolitical God that you have favor with and one that knows you and is concerned with your daily ongoings. And then this one, this one, the everlasting God. He has seen in different chapters that it's the God who sees, the God who judges, the God Almighty, and he has, he has put vernacular to his lips in this praise moment after he plants the well and the tree to say, this is the everlasting God, the one who's sufficient and capable for the everlasting covenant, the one who holds me, the one in which I'm digging my wells deep. I am not dancing for rain. I'm digging my wells deep. I have put my, my lot in this place, knowing that in success or failure, rain or shine, my God is faithful and he is everlasting in this place. And if he says it, it will come to pass. This is how Abraham has become a friend of God. And so this is where we are, I believe, in, even in 2020. And I want to encourage you with this reading plan that we want to do and the Bible teaching thing in November is I want you to be a tree and I want you to be a healthy tree. And the thing about trees that get too much water is they have shallow roots. Trees that are birthed in the desert need to learn how to get roots. They need to go down. They need to break through rocks. They need to break through discouragement. They need to avoid the, the love of money and the, the worries of the world and the persecution. They need to dig their roots deep down because the Holy Spirit's not falling. It's flowing through you. And he's waiting for you to surrender and, and, and to waiting for you to identify the everlasting God, the one whose promises prevail beyond ups and downs, successes and failures. This is the kind of tree he's trying to make in you. Do you see it? You're not rain dancing. You're not a, you're not a polytheist. You're not just doing whatever it takes to do the jig to get the job and get the thing, because if, 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 if it happens right, he must love me. If it doesn't happen right, he doesn't love me. This is not what God has called us to be, but to be a, 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 a tree that's planted by streams of water, worshiping an everlasting God who has given us an everlasting covenant, and we can trust him with every single part of our life. And so uh, I want to put up our intentional question um, for, for uh, the afternoon, and uh, I will. I want uh, if the band could come forward, I just need a, we just have a little bit of time to respond this morning because there's a lot to, to, to sink in here. But this is the question that I want you to consider with yourself, with your prayer partner, with your small group, with your spouse. This is it. Where in life are you, are you drifting, not dwelling? 
Because dwelling is not an address. Dwelling is trust. And trust us doesn't mean to trust him to go to heaven. Trust means he's sovereign in every point of life. Trust means he's the everlasting God. Trust means when your marriage isn't working out right. Trust means that when your job isn't working out right, that you're not waiting on rain to fall, that the spirit is flowing through you and he's waiting on you to surrender. So these are three ways that I want to ask you. Do you trust him enough to submit to others? If we look at the heritage and the tree, the family tree of Christians, like there are a lot of Christians that have, have survived and thrived under, under even harsh political schemes. Like even under Hitler, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of these greats that, that, have, that have become pillars and foundations in the, in the modern Christian movement have showed us what it means to resist the empire, to show us what it means not to, not, you know, uh, uh, to, to revolt only, but to learn how to resist and to see a land and with, with a city that has foundations and an architect who's God, to, to see that without being able to see it physically. And so I want to I encourage you. Like, I know you know this is true, but I just want to be another voice on the other end of the line. Meekness does not mean weakness. And you submitting to somebody else or making way for somebody else doesn't mean they beat you. It means you trust him. And so I want to encourage you, man, I love it. Like, this is not my personality, but if you're a fighter, then fight and fight for the right reasons and fight for the right person. But know that like strength is not about your muscular like, like abilities or military capabilities. It's based on trust. And so, and so Jesus, like he, he has the empire in his thumb, but he submits to poor people. Like he decides to submit. So meekness is not weakness. Meekness is inheritance. Meekness is trusting. Meekness is knowing where strength comes from. And so I believe in fighters, and I believe if you are somebody that stands up for the poor and the justice and you, and you oppose whatever cultural things are going on and you're more likely to disagree than you're to agree, then that's, that might be part of your gifting. But I'm just saying, make sure that gift is submitted to him and make sure that you understand where strength comes from. Number two, do you trust him enough to confess to others? I just want to tell you one of the reasons why you drift is because you get into small group and people aren't real. And we're knocking at the door. But you know how we get into a room that's real? We go first. And so here's what's going to save you a bunch of silly small groups because we're about discipleship, but you play a part and we can just set it up and put it online. Like that's an organic thing. I can't just draw a circle around it, right? So you lead. It's not time to just Bible answer. Like this is what I know about the Bible. That's not what this is about. This is about, this is who he is to me. This is the everlasting God. Who is he to you? And it's coming to him in weakness and apologizing first and submitting first and serving first. This is how we dwell. Dwell is not furniture. Dwell is not flags. It's surrender and trust. He's waiting on us. Are you becoming the kind of people that are digging roots deeper? There's more to be dug. There's more to be trusted. There's more to be given and more to be taken. Like, like, are we dwelling? Lastly, do you trust him for the promises? That's the tree and that's the well. He's, he's, he's put his stake in the ground. He's not moving. He's going to live with the Philistines for the rest of his life and know that he's always home. More home than the Philistines. Because you inherit the earth. You will one day inherit Greenville. This is what the Bible says. I'm not a monopoly. Like, I'm not trying to tell you a get rich you know, quick, quick scheme. I'm telling you that land is not taken, it's inherited. And he has told you for some strange grace-filled reason that he is giving you a home that you didn't buy, that you didn't fight for, and that you can't maintain on your own. And all of that, all of that insecurity and all that unsettledness is, 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 is nothing to him as we begin to trust in his sovereignty and his everlasting nature. We worship the same God as on this page that's in this room today. And we can dig our roots deep in him and no one who ever digs their roots deep will ever find themselves thirsty. Come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you water, living water.
you are an eternal being and everyone you pass on the street is an eternal being. And you are here not to curse, but to bless, to extend the same hesed love as God has given you. So that's all we have to do. Keep up on your rent, mow your lawn, make sure the HOA doesn't get on you, but spend most of your time investing in the eternal, investing in people, outserve people, outsubmit people, outconfess people. Trust in him. Dig your roots deep in him. This is the hour. This is the time that he has set apart for us to dig our roots deep in a home that doesn't exist. And when he returns, which he will, he will not be taking land. He will be giving it. We'll be inheriting it in ways that the Chinese and the Brazilians and the Americans and the Romans will never find out to do because they don't have kings like him. He's a good king. And he gives, he gives the land to those who trust him. Let's stand. And Father, anything physical, if it's the planted tree to dig a well, to bless a person, to honor a cop, Lord, that you would teach us to dwell in you and trust in you and not in flags. We thank you that you are sovereign and that you are trustworthy enough that we can be meek and inherit land rather than fight and take it. So thank you, God, that you have created a portion and if you have given it to us, nothing can be taken. And so that's where we get to rest. And so thank you, we are the Noahs of this earth. We are the ones that walk before you righteous because of your blood. And so we trust you in this thing. Man, would you speak? I, I pray that you would speak open ears right now in Jesus' name to hear ways that we need to trust you, ways that we're saving up money to try and buy something we already have. Would you speak? Would you teach us to trust? Would you grow root in us, Lord Jesus, that we would be deep people in your name, everlasting God. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.